Section 6 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Dawn 2, Part 4. From that day on, Melchior took him to the house of a neighbor, where three times a week there was chamber music. Melchior played first violin, Jean-Michel the violoncello. The other two were a bank clerk and the old watchmaker of the Schillerstrasse. Every now and then the chemist joined them with his flute. They began at five and went on till nine. Between each piece they drank beer. Neighbors used to come in and out and listen without a word, leaning against the wall and nodding their heads, and beating time with their feet, and filling the room with clouds of tobacco smoke. Page followed page, piece followed piece, but the patience of the musicians was never exhausted. They did not speak. They were all attention, their brows were knit, and from time to time they grunted with pleasure, but for the rest they were perfectly incapable not only of expressing but even of feeling the beauty of what they played they played neither very accurately nor in good time but they never went off the rails and followed faithfully the marked changes of tone they had that musical facility which is easily satisfied that mediocre perfection which is so plentiful in the race which is said to be the most musical in the world they had also that great appetite which does not stickle for the quality of its food, so only there be quantity, that healthy appetite to which all music is good, and the more substantial the better. It sees no difference between Brahms and Beethoven, or between the works of the same master, between an empty concerto and a moving sonata, because they are fashioned of the same stuff. Jean-Christophe sat apart in a corner which was his own, behind the piano. No one could disturb him there, for to reach it he had to go on all fours. It was half dark there, and the boy had just room to lie on the floor if he huddled up. The smoke of the tobacco filled his eyes and throat. Dust, too. There were large flakes of it like sheepskin, but he did not mind that and listened gravely, squatting there Turkish fashion, and widening the holes in the cloth of the piano with his dirty little fingers. He did not like everything that they played, but nothing that they played bored him, and he never tried to formulate his opinions, for he thought himself too small to know anything. Only some music sent him to sleep. Some woke him up. It was never disagreeable to him. Without his knowing it, it was nearly always good music that excited him. Sure of not being seen, he made faces. He wrinkled his nose, ground his teeth, or stuck out his tongue. His eyes flashed with anger, or drooped languidly. He moved his arms and legs with a defiant and valiant air. He wanted to march, to lunge out, to pulverize the world. He fidgeted so much that in the end a head would peer over the piano and say, "'Hello, boy, are you mad? Leave the piano. Take your hand away, or I'll pull your ears.' And that made him crestfallen and angry. 
Why did they want to spoil his pleasure? He was not doing any harm. Must he always be tormented? His father chimed in. They chid him for making a noise, and said that he did not like music, and in the end he believed it. These honest citizens, grinding out concertos, would have been astonished if they had been told that the only person in the company who really felt the music was the little boy. If they wanted him to keep quiet, why did they play airs which make you march? In those pages were rearing horses, swords, war cries, the pride of triumph, and they wanted him, like them, to do no more than wag his head and beat time with his feet. They had only to play placid dreams or some of those chattering pages which talk so much and say nothing. There are plenty of them, for example, like that piece of gold marks, of which the old watchmaker had just said with a delighted smile, It is pretty. There is no harshness in it. All the corners are rounded off. The boy was very quiet then. He became drowsy. He did not know what they were playing, hardly heard it, but he was happy. His limbs were numbed, and he was dreaming. His dreams were not a consecutive story. They had neither head nor tail. It was rarely that he saw a definite picture, his mother making a cake, and with a knife removing the paste that clung to her fingers, a water rat that he had seen the night before swimming in the river, a whip that he wanted to make with a willow wand. Heaven knows why these things should have cropped up in his memory at such a time, but most often he saw nothing at all, and yet he felt things innumerable and infinite. It was as though there were a number of very important things not to be spoken of, or not worth speaking of, because they were so well known, and because they had always been so. Some of them were sad, terribly sad, but there was nothing painful in them, as there is in the things that belong to real life. They were not ugly and debasing, like the blows that John Christophe had from his father, or like the things that were in his head when, sick at heart with shame, he thought of some humiliation. They filled the mind with a melancholy calm. And some were bright and shining, shedding torrents of joy. And John Christophe thought, Yes, it is thus, thus that I will do by and by. He did not know exactly what thus was, nor why he said it, but he felt that he had to say it, and that it was clear as day. He heard the sound of a sea, and he was quite near to it, kept from it only by a wall of dunes. Jean Christophe had no idea what sea it was, or what it wanted with him, but he was conscious that it would rise above the barrier of dunes. And then? Then all would be well, and he would be quite happy. Nothing to do but to hear it then, quite near, to sink to sleep to the sound of its great voice, soothing away all his little griefs and humiliations. They were sad still, but no longer shameful nor injurious. Everything seemed natural and almost sweet. Very often it was mediocre music that produced this intoxication in him. The writers of it were poor devils, with no thought in their heads but the gaining of money, or the hiding away of the emptiness of their lives by tagging notes together according to accepted formulae, or to be original, in defiance of formulae. But in the notes of music, even when handled by an idiot, there is such a power of life that they can let loose storms in a simple soul,
Perhaps even the dreams suggested by the idiots are more mysterious and more free than those breathed by an imperious thought which drags you along by force. For aimless movement and empty chatter do not disturb the mind in its own pondering. So, forgotten and forgetting, the child stayed in his corner behind the piano until suddenly he felt ants climbing up his legs, and he remembered then that he was a little boy with dirty nails and that he was rubbing his nose against a whitewashed wall and holding his feet in his hands. On the day when Melchior, stealing on tiptoe, had surprised the boy at the keyboard that was too high for him, he had stayed to watch him for a moment, and suddenly there had flashed upon him a little prodigy. Why had he not thought of it? What luck for the family! No doubt he had thought that the boy would be a little peasant like his mother. It would cost nothing to try. What a great thing it would be! He would take him all over Germany, perhaps abroad. It would be a jolly life and noble to boot. Melchior never failed to look for the nobility hidden in all he did, for it was not often that he failed to find it after some reflection. Strong in this assurance, immediately after supper, as soon as he had taken his last mouthful, he dumped the child once more in front of the piano and made him go through the day's lesson until his eyes closed in weariness. Then three times the next day, then the day after that, then every day. Jean-Christophe soon tired of it. Then he was sick to death of it. Finally he could stand it no more and tried to revolt against it. There was no point in what he was made to do, nothing but learning to run as fast as possible over the keys by loosening the thumb or exercising the fourth finger which would cling awkwardly to the two next to it. It got on his nerves. There was nothing beautiful in it. There was an end of the magic sounds and fascinating monsters and the universe of dreams felt in one moment. Nothing but scales and exercises, dry, monotonous, dull, duller than the conversation at mealtime, which was always the same, always about the dishes, and always the same dishes. At first the child listened absently to what his father said. When he was severely reprimanded, he went on with a bad grace. He paid no attention to abuse. He met it with bad temper. The last straw was when one evening he heard Melchior unfold his plans in the next room. So it was in order to put him on show like a trick animal that he was so badgered and forced every day to move bits of ivory. He was not even given time to go and see his beloved river. What was it made them so set against him? He was angry, hurt in his pride, robbed of his liberty. He decided that he would play no more, or as badly as possible, and would discourage his father. It would be hard but at all costs he must keep his independence. The very next lesson he began to put his plan into execution. He set himself conscientiously to hit the notes awry, or to bungle every touch. Melchior cried out, then roared, and blows began to rain. He had a heavy ruler. At every false note he struck the boy's fingers, and at the same time shouted in his ears so that he was like to deafen him. Jean Christophe's face twitched under the pain of it. He bit his lips to keep himself from crying, and stoically went on hitting the notes all wrong, bobbing his head down whenever he felt a blow coming. But his system was not good, 
and it was not long before he began to see that it was so. Melchior was as obstinate as his son, and he swore that even if they were to stay there two days and two nights, he would not let him off a single note until it had been properly played. Then Jean-Christophe tried too deliberately to play wrongly, and Melchior began to suspect the trick as he saw that the boy's hand fell heavily to one side at every note with obvious intent. The blows became more frequent. Jean-Christophe was no longer conscious of his fingers. He wept pitifully and silently, sniffing and swallowing down his sobs and tears. He understood that he had nothing to gain by going on like that, and that he would have to resort to desperate measures. He stopped, and trembling at the thought of the storm which was about to let loose, he said valiantly, Papa, I won't play any more. Melchior choked. What? What? he cried. He took and almost broke the boy's arm with shaking it, Jean-Christophe trembling more and more, and raising his elbow to ward off the blows, said again, I won't play any more, first because I don't like being beaten, and then... He could not finish. A terrific blow knocked the wind out of him, and Melchior roared, Ah, you don't like being beaten? You don't like it? Blows rained. Jean-Christophe bawled through his sobs. And then, I don't like music. I don't like music. He slipped down from his chair. Melchior roughly put him back and knocked his knuckles against the keyboard. He cried, You shall play. And Jean-Christophe shouted, No, no, I won't play. Melchior had to surrender. He thrashed the boy, thrust him from the room, and said that he should have nothing to eat all day or the whole month until he had played all his exercises without a mistake. He kicked him out and slammed the door after him. Jean-Christophe found himself on the stairs, the dark and dirty stairs, worm-eaten. A draft came through a broken pane in the skylight, and the walls were dripping. Jean-Christophe sat on one of the greasy steps. His heart was beating wildly with anger and emotion. In a low voice he cursed his father. Beast! That's what you are! A beast! A gross creature! A brute! Yes, a brute! And I hate you! I hate you! Oh, I wish you were dead! I wish you were dead! His bosom swelled. He looked desperately at the sticky staircase and the spider's web swinging in the wind above the broken pane. He felt alone lost in his misery. He looked at the gap in the banisters. What if he were to throw himself down, or out of the window? Yes, what if he were to kill himself to punish them? How remorseful they would be! He heard the noise of his fall from the stairs. The door upstairs opened suddenly. Agonized voices cried, He has fallen! He has fallen! Footsteps clattered downstairs. His father and mother threw themselves weeping upon his body. His mother sobbed. It is your fault. You have killed him. His father waved his arms, threw himself on his knees, beat his head against the banisters, and cried, What a wretch am I! What a wretch am I! The sight of all this softened his misery. He was on the point of taking pity on their grief, but then he thought that it was well for them, had he enjoyed his revenge. When his story was ended, he found himself once more at the top of the stairs in the dark. He looked down once more, and his desire to throw himself down was gone. He even shuddered a little, and moved away from the edge, thinking that he might fall, 
Then he felt that he was a prisoner, like a poor bird in a cage, a prisoner forever, with nothing to do but to break his head and hurt himself. He wept, wept, and he rubbed his eyes with his dirty little hands, so that in a moment he was filthy. As he wept, he never left off looking at the things about him, and he found some distraction in that. He stopped moaning for a moment, to look at the spider which had just begun to move. Then he began with less conviction. He listened to the sound of his own weeping, and went on, mechanically with his sobbing, without much knowing why he did so. Soon he got up. He was attracted by the window. He sat on the window-sill, retiring into the background, and watched the spider furtively. It interested while it revolted him. Below the Rhine flowed, washing the walls of the house. In the staircase window it was like being suspended over the river in a moving sky. Jean Christophe never limped down the stairs without taking a long look at it, but he had never yet seen it as it was today. Grief sharpens the senses. It is as though everything were more sharply graven on the vision after tears have washed away the dim traces of memory. The river was like a living thing to the child, a creature inexplicable, but how much more powerful than all the creatures that he knew. Jean Christophe leaned forward to see it better. He pressed his mouth and flattened his nose against the pane. Where was it going? What did it want? It looked free and sure of its road. Nothing could stop it. At all hours of the day or night, rain or sun, whether there were joy or sorrow in the house, it went on going by, and it was as though nothing mattered to it, as though it never knew sorrow, and rejoiced in its strength. What joy to be like it, to run through the fields and by willow branches and over little shining pebbles and crisping sand, and to care for nothing, to be cramped by nothing, to be free. The boy looked and listened greedily. It was as though he were borne along by the river, moving by with it. When he closed his eyes he saw color, blue, green, yellow, red, and great chasing shadows and sunbeams. What he sees takes shape. Now it is a large plain, reeds, corn waving under a breeze, scented with new grass and mint, Flowers on every side, cornflowers, poppies, violets. How lovely it is, how sweet the air, how good it is to lie down in the thick, soft grass. Jean Christophe feels glad and a little bewildered, as he does when on feast days his father pours into his glass a little Rhine wine. The river goes by, the country is changed. Now there are trees leaning over the water. Their delicate leaves, like little hands, dip, move, and turn about in the water. A village among the trees is mirrored in the river. There are cypress trees, and the crosses of the cemetery showing above the white wall washed by the stream. Then there are rocks, a mountain gorge, vines on the slopes, a little pine wood, and ruined castles, and once more the plain, corn, birds, and the sun. The great green mass of the river goes by smoothly, like a single thought. There are no waves, almost no ripples, smooth, oily patches. Jean Christophe does not see it. He has closed his eyes to hear it better. The ceaseless roaring fills him, makes him giddy. 
He is exalted by this eternal, masterful dream which goes no man knows whither. Over the turmoil of its depths rush waters in swift rhythm, eagerly, ardently, and from the rhythm ascends music, like a vine climbing a trellis, arpeggios from silver keys, sorrowful violins, velvety and smooth-sounding flutes. The country has disappeared. The river has disappeared. There floats by only a strange, soft, and twilight atmosphere. Jean Christophe's heart flutters with emotion. What does he see now? Oh, charming faces. A little girl with brown tresses calls to him, slowly, softly, and mockingly. A pale boy's face looks at him with melancholy blue eyes. Others smile. Other eyes look at him, curious and provoking eyes, and their glances make him blush. Eyes affectionate and mournful, like the eyes of a dog. Eyes imperious, eyes suffering. And the pale face of a woman with black hair and lips close-pressed, and eyes so large that they obscure her other features, and they gaze upon Jean Christophe with an ardor that hurts him. And, dearest of all, that face which smiles upon him with clear gray eyes and lips a little open, showing gleaming white teeth, ah, how kind and tender is that smile! All his heart is tenderness from it. How good it is to love, again, smile upon me again, do not go, Alas, it is gone, but it leaves in his heart sweetness ineffable. Evil, sorrow are no more. Nothing is left. Nothing, only an airy dream, like serene music floating down a sunbeam, like the gossamers on fine summer days. What has happened? What are these visions that fill the child with sadness and sweet sorrow? Never had he seen them before, and yet he knew them and recognized them. Whence come they? From what obscure abysm of creation? Are they what has been? Or what will be? Now all is done. Every haunting form is gone. Once more through a misty veil, as though he were soaring high above it, the river in flood appears, covering the fields and rolling by, majestic, slow, almost still. And far, far away, like a steely light upon the horizon, a watery plain, a line of trembling waves, the sea. The river runs down to it. The sea seems to run up to the river. She fires him. He desires her. He must lose himself in her. The music hovers. Lovely dance rhythms swing out madly. All the world is rocked in their triumphant whirligig. The soul, set free, cleaves space like swallow's flight, like swallows drunk with the air, skimming across the sky with shrill cries. Joy! Joy! There is nothing, nothing, oh, infinite happiness. Hours passed. It was evening. The staircase was in darkness. Drops of rain made rings upon the river's gown, and the current bore them dancing away. Sometimes the branch of a tree or pieces of black bark passed noiselessly and disappeared. The murderous spider had withdrawn to her darkest corner, and little Jean Christophe was still leaning forward on the window sill. His face was pale and dirty. Happiness shone in him. He was asleep. 
End of Section 6